0: Welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Once.
1: If your life was gone, how
0: But first, how are we doing? We're back after a week away. Thank you for joining us for this, the latest episode of The Musical Man. I hope that you are doing well. Benny and I are doing well. We have a few items that we would like to address here at the top of the show, specifically five. We have five items. Let's begin with item number one, and it involves Benny. Benny, Patty and I recently sat down for a lovely dinner and some lovely conversation. A lot of it had to do with business because we are in the process of transitioning Patty back into the producer engineer hot seat. It is her throne, it is her rightful throne and Benny has been keeping it warm, uh, quite warm. I, I I feel Benny, you have been doing an excellent job. And I think we can all agree that you have been an enormous, you've contributed so much, is what I'm trying to say to this show. And I am grateful to you for that. But at the same time, I have been missing Patty like the Dickens. I got to see some new photos of the baby during that very self-same dinner. And I just wanted to give everyone an update just to let everyone know, yes, Patty is on track. She is on schedule and she will be back with us at the top of November. Yes, next month. So count down those days, fair listeners. I'm very excited. And Benny, we are absolutely going to miss you. If If my compliments and my praise didn't make it clear, I am going to be missing you. But we cannot say goodbye just yet. No, 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 no. You will give a proper goodbye when the time is appropriate. But for now, let's discuss our other items. Item number two, two weeks ago. I erroneously cited Rod Steiger as the host of The Twilight Zone, and now I have egg all over my face, and it's broiling hot, that egg. He is, in fact, Rod Steiger is, in fact, a character actor whose credits include In the Heat of the Night, On the Waterfront, The Hurricane. The actual host of The Twilight Zone was, in fact, Rod Serling. So my apologies, Mr. Serling, for my error. Item number three. Now, I became quite frustrated this past week when after updating my Mac to the Catalina OS, the vast majority of my music collection's album art inexplicably vanished into thin air. So while I was restoring my collection to its proper condition, I developed a newfound appreciation For the art of cast album covers, castalbums.org was an enormous resource for me when rebuilding my collection, and most of their album imagery is top-notch, very high quality, so I took a few moments to admire the detail found in a lot of these covers. Good example, the album for Pretty Bell. That is psychedelic and crazy and beautiful in its own strange Pop art sort of way, it's got. I would say it's got a bit of a Warhol vibe to it, and I would absolutely hang it and many other album covers from my cast album collection on my wall. On the flip side, I came to realize that a lot of cast album covers are pretty derivative of each other, featuring love-struck men floating through white negative space, and or women who are almost always in a state of undress. But if you can wade through the. Res- Results of those two trends. There are a lot of gems to be admired So I would suggest that you go and admire those gems item number four. We're already here at item number four Yes, we are item number four. I recently watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade performance of Fun, 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 a number from the defunct Beach Boys jukebox musical, Good Vibrations. Ooh, that was a mammoth sentence that I just delivered, and I'm proud of myself for it. Near the top of said performance, actor David Larson delivers the line, "'Well, she got her daddy's car and she cruised to the hamburger stand now.'" And upon delivering this line, this lyric, he chomps into a hamburger held by one of his co-stars. He's like, how? That's what he does, he goes, how? He also slurps from a soda straw, but I don't care about that so much. The chomp is what I like. It's a brilliant bit of staging and I won't hear otherwise. He's talking about a hamburger stand. And then a lady saddles up to him with a bag, a little paper bag, and inside the bag is a big old beefy sandwich. A beefed sandwich. And he chops it. Ow! He says hamburger and then he eats the hamburger. I don't know if you get it. Because he says, eh, you're not going to get it. I thought it was great. Obviously, no one is as perceptive as I am when it comes to theatrical brilliance. You don't you don't get it. It's fine. It's fine. You don't get it. Let's just move on to item number five. I got married. No big deal. Show me the show facts. Yes. Okay. Let's show me the show facts. Once, is the 2012 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on March 18th, 2012 at the Bernard B. Jacobs. Hello, it's me, Bernard B. Jacobs Theater, and ran for 1,168 performances. The book was written by, I really want to call her Edna, and she must be driven nuts by the fact that so many people want to call her Edna when they look at her name. Enda Walsh. That is the author of the book, and the book is based on the 2007 film, written and directed by John Carney. The music and lyrics were written by Glenn Hansard and Markita Irglová, the stars of the 2007 film, and the show also features songs written by Fergus O'Farrell, Martin Lowe, Andy Taylor, and Enda Walsh, I'm just going to have to say that with a lot of emphasis. I'm just going to have to take that step very slowly into her first name every time it comes up. So please forgive me. (laughs) The director of the production was John Tiffany. Uh, The musical director, I realized that I didn't write this down. One second, one second, I'll be right with you. We're going to confirm the musical director together. Not in real time. We're going to have an edit. We're going to have an edit point here. And we're back. Oh, the magic of editing. Well, the reason I didn't have a musical director written down in my notes is because according to the Internet Broadway database, the IBDB, there was no musical music director. I couldn't even find some sort of equivalent credit. I might be missing something. So if you are smarter than I am, I doubt it. I'm a very smart individual. I have. I also have keen eyes. I have eyes like a fucking hawk. Uh, but if you find any information regarding this mysterious credit, please reach out to me. The Choreographer, N.A., not applicable. No choreographer listed. But we do have Movement by Stephen Hawkett. The scenic design was by Bob Crowley. The lighting design was by Natasha Katz. The sound design was by Clive Goodwin. The costume design was by Bob Crowley, and the original Broadway cast included Steve Casey, Kristen Maloti, David Abelez, Will Connolly, Elizabeth A. Davis, David Patrick Kelly, Anne L. Nathan, Lucas Papilias. I apologize, of course, Lucas, for the mispronunciation of your last name, and that apology extends to anyone and everyone. The cast also included Ribley. so... Robo, Andy Taylor, Michaela Twiggs, Erica Walsh, Paula Woody, and J. Michael Zygo. Let's talk about the Tony nominations and wins. The show won Best Musical, of course, Best Book of a Musical, and uh, Walsh, Best Actor in a Musical Steve Cassie, Best Direction of a Musical John Tiffany, Best Orchestrations Martin Lowe, Best Scenic Design Bob Crowley, Best Lighting Design Natasha Katz, and Best Sound Design Clive Goodwin, and the awards it was nominated for, but did not win were Best Actress in a Musical Kristen Malotti, Best Featured Actress in a Musical Elizabeth A. Davis, and Best Choreography Stephen Hoggett. So in total, 11 nominations and at the end of the night once walked way with eight awards. Congratulations to you once. Let's talk about the plot. I don't think it will take too long to summarize the plot of once. It can be easily distilled down to guy meets girl, girl inspires guy, girl and guy say goodbye. The lead characters are actually referenced as guy and girl in both the original film and and, end, ah, Walsh's book. (laughs) So you know I ain't kidding around with that logline. Guy is an Irish busker who sings on the streets of Dublin. On the streets of Dublin! No, not that show. Wait, uh, you know what? Wait, 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 wait. Before I go any further, I should point out how the cast acts as the show's onstage band... And when the audience first walks into the venue, that band is already in full swing, hammering out folk songs and pub tunes so as to establish a rollicking atmosphere. When the show officially starts, Guy cuts through the revelry with one of his melancholy ballads. Dude is the definition of hangdog. He's in a total state of bummer. And when the song comes to an end, he places his guitar on the ground and, and he begins to walk away is what he does, only to be interrupted by girl. Girl, as we are often told, is Czech, which means she is quite serious and always speaks her mind. She confronts Guy, asking him several questions about the state of his love life and his his interest in music. Guy is understandably taken aback by this woman's keen interest in him, but he does reveal a few salient details, namely that his songs were written for an ex-girlfriend who now lives in New York, and that he plans to give up music so he can continue to work for his Da. Da in a vacuum repair shop. Girl is delighted by the second bit of info as she owns a vacuum in need of repair. She strikes a deal with Guy. If he can fix her vacuum, she will pay him for his efforts, not with money. No, na na na, na, na. But with music, they journey to a music shop owned by Billy, a man who is described as half-Spanish and written as half-a-stereotype, a generalization. I will be applying to a number of supporting characters in this show, unfortunately. Billy has an affection for Girl, but agrees to close up the shop during his lunch break so she can play the piano for Guy. While playing and singing together, Guy and Girl begin to form a cautious bond. Girl believes in Guy's music and is deeply disappointed by the idea that he might give it up. After their jam session at Billy's, Guy and Girl journey to the vacuum repair shop. We learn Guy and his Da live just above it as the latter sold his house after his wife died. Da takes a shining to Girl, but the evening ends on a sour note when Guy invites her up to his bedroom and makes a clumsy pass. She believes Guy's relationship with his ex is unresolved and worth fighting for, that he should move to New York win her back and pursue his artistic dreams while the time is right. She takes Guy to her flat, where he is introduced to her wild roommates, plain-spoken mother Baruska, and young daughter Ivanka. He discovers Girl has a husband, and while their marriage is strained, they are trying to work things out. Despite these complications and her growing affection for Guy, she throws out an idea go in on a bank loan, rent a studio for the day, and record a demo of Guy's songs, one he can use once he moves to New York. While applying for the loan, Guy and girl bond with a bank manager, who is himself an aspiring musician and lover of Dublin culture. After Guy wows the bank manager with a song, the bank manager whips out a guitar of his own and cranks out a twangy, borderline bizarre tune of his own creation. He asks for Guy and Girl's honest opinions, and they admit that while he can certainly play, he most certainly cannot sing. It's a blow to the manager's ego, but he takes it in stride and approves their loan. To celebrate, our heroes go for drinks at a nearby pub where Girl has secretly signed Guy up to play in front of drunken hecklers. Though nervous at first, Guy winds up winning the crowd over with a love song, one that is clearly no longer meant for his ex-girlfriend, but for girl. She is shaken, for despite her best efforts, she has indeed fallen in love with Guy. Act 2 is even easier to summarize, as it chiefly involves Guy, Girl, and their crew of misfit musicians coming together to lay down the demo at a studio. There are some moments of artistic tension, mainly between Billy and the bank manager, who are members of the band, but in the end, everyone gets on the same page. They even manage to impress Iman, the cynical studio engineer who initially views them as a bunch of daft loonies. While alone on a break, Girl sits at a piano and plays one of her own compositions, a song that articulates her feelings for Guy. She is unaware that Guy is watching nearby, and when he compliments the performance, she cannot help but raise her walls once more. The session comes to a successful end, and everyone parts ways on good terms, with the bank manager, who we learn is gay, just FYI, giving advice to the financially troubled Billy. There's also some business about Billy falling for one of girl's roommates, but that that's not important, not gonna focus on that. In the end, Guy tells Da that he plans to fly to New York and start a new chapter in his life, Da supports the decision and gives Guy a check to get him started, but Guy uses the money to buy a piano from Billy and have it delivered to girls' flat. As she sits down to play and he flies to New York, they sing a reprise of Falling Slowly, the song that first brought them together as artists and people. I'm getting a little blubbery just thinking about it. All right, so for the purposes of this week's episode, I did not rewatch the 2007 film. I have seen the film at least twice, but it's been years and years since I sat down with it. I did watch the trailer to remind myself of its overall mood and aesthetic, and was taken aback by how grainy and homemade it looked. I didn't necessarily remember it having that quality. And Glenn Hansard and Marquette Erglova look so young. They look like mere babies to me now. Broadway casting tends to prioritize squeaky clean ingenues over the awkward, ruddy humanity of performers like Hansard and Erglova, which is kind of a shame, but eh. Well, What are you gonna do? I also listened to the 2012 original Broadway cast album while reading the book by Enda Walsh. I actually had to go to the downtown library to scan that script. I provided a Dropbox link via our Twitter profile, so you too can read this script if you like. Oddly enough, the only copy they had was one that you could not check out, which is why I had to scan that puppy front to back. There is a moment in the first act between Girl and Da that I really, really liked. She's asking about his late wife, and his responses are polite, if a bit canned. You can tell he's sort of gone through this process before. But when she asks how he's doing, it almost seems to surprise him, and he takes a moment before offering his reply. The dialogue is sparse on the page, but I picked up on the character's gratitude. Da's gratitude, I should say. The relief that comes with being able to say, why yes, I'm I'm actually doing pretty well all things considered. Thank you for reminding me of that. Thank you for giving me the chance to say that. It's really quite lovely. The book is strong overall, though I could stand to know more about what drives Girl as a character. She never quite achieves manic pixie dream status, but she dedicates a lot of energy to fanning the flames of Guy's dreams. Strangely, while Guy's ex-girlfriend is heard via telephone in Act 2, Girl's husband has no onstage presence whatsoever. Why is that? Why was that artistic choice made, and why is Ivanka, the daughter, relegated to a few silent moments before being shuttled off to the wings? Do we not consider Ivanka to be an important part of her life? There is a somewhat revealing conversation between Girl and her mother, but it's focused entirely on men. I want to know about Girl's inner life. Does she focus on pushing Guy out of his comfort zone because she's too afraid to take her own risks? She's clearly an accomplished musician and a lyricist. She helps write a number of the songs for Guy's demo. So why isn't she pursuing music? A great deal of time is spent parsing through Guy's motivations, and I believe more could be dedicated to learning about Girl. It doesn't help how the show's ad campaign included the tagline, All his music needed was her. Cool, but... What does she need? What does her music need? Is her husband good to her? Is he worthy of her? Does she want to stay in Dublin for the rest of her life? These are questions that we could be addressing, but we don't, so it's frustrating. And finally, I watched the Tony Awards performance of the song, Gold. Gold serves as the Act 1 finale, but it would appear to have been recontextualized for the purposes of the broadcast. In the book, Guy is meant to be standing before a general crowd, but for the Tonys, those seated before him wield instruments and supplement the performance to the point where they rise and even knock out a bit of simple choreography. In the book, Girl is the reason why Guy performs here in the first place. She pushes him on stage, essentially, and says, Get in front of a crowd. You have to get used to performing in front of a crowd, Guy. But for the Tonys, Kristen Malotti appears almost dumbstruck as Girl, but also she seems deeply moved and maybe freaked out as if Guy had planned all of this for her as a surprise. It's very strange. It's hard to interpret. Even more so if you have zero reference for the show's story, I imagine. After the performance, we do cut to Glenn Hansard and Marketa Erglova in the audience, and their beaming expressions of pride are really something to behold. It's, it's quite charming. It's clear they love how their film was adapted for the stage. A couple of general observations before we get into the nitty-gritty of the score deconstruction. I don't have a lot to say about the score of this week's subject, as Once is more of a vibe show than a traditional musical. In the vast majority of musicals, characters slide or burst into songs so as to expand upon their current train of thought, right? They're usually backed by an unseen orchestra and no one questions their decision to sing. They're not even perceived as people who are singing. You get it. You know how most musicals work. It's all part and parcel of the magic realism we must accept. If we're to get anything out of the form, Once is a musical for those who can't get on board for the magic realism. Its songs are purely diegetic, meaning they are only performed for reasons that quote-unquote make sense within the boundaries of a quote-unquote real world. The characters are musicians. They sing while rehearsing or recording or in front of an audience. And while the songs they write and perform may hint... At their deeper motivations, they are not meant to be as revealing or as confessional as those you would find in a traditional musical. They instead establish a general, say it with me, vibe. Once is a vibe show, a lean-back-and-close-your-eyes show, one where you can let your mind drift while picking up on various colors and shades, What it is not is a lean forward show where everything occurring on stage is vital to your understanding of the narrative. This is not to say once it's a show that gives you permission to check out or not pay attention at all, but it is a sort of concert when all is said and done. And what does one do during a concert? Drift, baby, ride those vibe waves, reflect, let your mind wander, allow your mood to be affected. I think you're picking up what I'm laying down, so let's stop with the generalizations and get specific regarding the score, Bartok the Magnificent here. Hey ya! Strand is very much in the mold of the modern overture. At less than 90 seconds it does little more than establish that the show is about to start, so you should probably sit down and shut up. Granted, the cast is meant to bang out music from the moment you enter the space, so in a sense, it's like you're getting a half-hour overture depending on when you arrive. You better be arriving on time, but I digress. The North Strand does incorporate the chief melody line from Falling Slowly via Honey Sweet Violin, which I appreciated and greatly enjoyed. Made me perk up, it did. The overture may essentially be dead at this point, the full-length overture, I should say, but at least this overture knows what an overture is meant to accomplish. An overture... How
1: many times am I going to say
0: it? An overture is a sampler platter, yum, giving you bite-sized chumps that make you hungry for more. Ah, you like that tune, monsieur? Do ya? Well, you're gonna get the full course later, me right body lass. What kind of accent am I even trying to do? I'm a disaster. Never cast me in anything that requires any sort of accent. It's just gonna come off as vaguely offensive. Just ignore that I did that, please. Just ignore that I fucking did that. remember when Falling Slowly was the talk of the town 10 years ago? Talk about an indie darling, and I'm here to tell you, this trap still slaps. It's a bop, and it all comes down to that tempo. Falling Slowly gently grinds out its iconic chords right at the outset, making sure you have all the time you need to absorb and memorize them. Within seconds, you are hooked. If you have any sort of ear for music, this shit will stick to you like glue, whether you like it or not. And I like it very much. There's a weariness and a hope within it, like you're trudging through winter because, you know, spring is just round the corner, when Guy and Girl returned to this song, falling slowly at the end of Act Two, it choked me up a bit, I'm not gonna lie. This is the song that forged their artistic and personal connection. It was the first real moment either of them had experienced in quite a while, so when it becomes the theme of their parting, I couldn't really handle it, I do say. A murky bout of nostalgia was whipped up within me, generalized, a generic, store-brand nostalgia I can't possibly explain or pin to a particular melody, I was simply feeling all of the feels, as the kids say. On a general note, Steve Kazi and Kristen Malati, again I apologize in all instances of my mispronouncing names, They are fantastic vocalists. I would say they're doing impressions of Hansard and Irglova, but this music is so deceptively difficult in my opinion, you have to be uniquely singular in skill to pull it off. Can you imagine this material in the hands of less than stellar singers? Can you imagine it? Goodness gracious. Let's not. Falling slowly should be reserved for the best of the best when it comes to performers. No exceptions.
1: pada rosiśka e pada pada rosiśćka <makes noise>
0: run-on sentence for you. Numbers like El Pada Pada Rosica come off as perfunctory attempts on the part of the creative team to interrupt the marathon stretch of heavy-lidded gloom that is once. I say this as a fan of heavy-lidded gloom. I can hear the brainstorm session now. Ah, these characters are always singing about the romantic swords on which they have fallen. We get it. The show can't be just about that, can it? Whatever happened to levity? We got to make room for levity. Now, where do inject the levity? Haha. <laughs> Let's have girls roommates and family put on a frenetic, vivacious, vaguely euro-ethnic display of levity. Emphasis on vague. We don't want to get too specific. It'll it'll be cultural. Yes, cultural. Yeah, that's the ticket. It won't stink. I'm sure the concept plays well enough on stage, but on paper it reads as padding. You know what it is? It's not, you know, this is what it comes down to. It's not fun to watch a party at a distance. Parties tend to be fun if one, you're a party person, and two, you can be a participant in the party. No one wants to feel like they're a creep out of the film rear window. And just to make my reservations more clear, the Czech and otherwise foreign characters are definitely thin. They're blandly hot-tempered across the board when not serving as sounding boards for the two leads. Lord knows that can't be terribly interesting to play, which is why I'm sure the creative team wanted a number like El Padre Rosica all the more. If we give these characters something to do, they won't seem so stuck. Eh, nice try, you failed, but nice try, gang.
1: Are you really here, or am I dreaming? I can't tell dreams from truth, for it's been so long since I have seen. You. I can hardly remember your face anymore When I get really lonely And the distance causes only silence I think of you smiling With pride in your eyes A lover that sighs
0: When I think back on the original film, the If You Want Me sequence really stands out. It's the one instance where the edges of its world are allowed to blur, allowing the anything-goes quality of a musical to seep in. In the scene, in the film, a girl walks from a convenience store to her apartment building after having bought fresh batteries for her Discman. During the walk home, she listens to Guy's instrumental track, creating lyrics on the fly that are sung out to the night. This is how If You Want Me comes into being. It's how she writes the song. It's not diegetic at all, as I'm certain this is only the first or second time she's even heard the track. But that's what makes it so fun. Anything can happen in a capital M musical, don't you know? But I don't mean to focus on the film too much. I only bring up the original scene because while reading Enda Walsh's book, it felt like that opportunity for magic was being ignored. The stage directions are admittedly sparse, and I'm certain director John Tiffany fleshed them out with his staging. But as written, Girl simply sings while nestled in bed with her daughter. It's simple, and simplicity can absolutely be engaging. But I missed the wandering from the movie. I missed how Girl sang to the night while walking past total strangers. Maybe I'm a spoiled brat, but this is a danger you face when adapting a film so many people know and adore. They will want to see certain moments recreated on stage, and if you don't give those moments to them, they will feel let down. If you want further evidence <laughs> to this point, read the reviews for Moulin Rouge from people who have seen that show. A lot of people getting quite angry over the fact that it's not exactly like the movie they grew up with. So that's the risk. That's the risk that you take by making changes. P.S. I'm all about change, by the way. You can make changes, but some of them aren't going to work. That's just inevitable. P.S. If You Want Me is great. Duh, it makes me think of ghosts, and I don't chalk that up to being in the thick of October. All right, Halloween has nothing to do with it. Okay, bub, let me think of ghosts and ghouls if I want to. It's a vibe show, baby, and I'm picking up on a ghost vibe. Boo!
1: Ten years ago I fell in love With an Irish girl She took my heart But she went and screwed Some guy that she knew And now I'm in Dublin With a broken heart Oh, broken hearted Hoover fixer sucker guy Oh, broken hearted Hoover fixer, sucker, sucker guy. One day I'll go there and win her once again. But until then, I'm just a sucker
0: of a guy. I actually have the same problem regarding context when it comes to this song, Broken Hearted Hoover Fixer, Sucker Guy. In the film, pushes glasses so that they don't fall off the tip of his nose. Uh, In the film, girl and guy are on a bus, right? Uh, This is not the beginning of a joke. Girl and guy are on a bus. Girl asks guy, this is not a joke, I swear, I'm not telling you a joke. Girl asks guy to talk about his ex-girlfriend, and he responds by improvising this song. And we're charmed because the moment feels genuinely spontaneous, and the song turns out to be quite warm and clever. Well... Ten years ago, I fell in love with an Irish girl. She took my heart, but she went and screwed some guy that she knew. And now I'm in Dublin with a broken heart. Oh, broken hearted, Hoover fixer sucker guy. Broken hearted Hoover fixer sucker, sucker guy. One day I'll go there and win her once again, but until then, I'm just a sucker of a guy. <laughs> <laughs> In the stage musical, Guy is simply standing alone in his bedroom, and it doesn't seem like he's improvising at all. Girl observes him unseen. There is a lot of sneaky viewing from afar in this show. I'm, I'm just going to point that out. And I, I guess I don't know what's meant to be conveyed about either character when this moment comes to an end. The song is sprightly and goofy, and in the film, that humor is meant to please girl while diminishing the weight of her probing questions. It's a total deflection, oh, she's asking me about my ex, this is getting a little too heavy for me, I I know I'll whip up a silly song. But on stage, again, what is happening? I ask again, is Guy trying to amuse himself? He doesn't read as the kind of guy, the kind of person, who would try to tickle his own funny bone. I could see him trying to go down on himself, blowing himself. Absolutely, yes. But tickling his funny bone? I don't think so, chief. I would argue you could cut broken-hearted Hoover Fixer Sucker guy and not lose any goodwill with your audience. If we're showing up, it's to hear songs like Falling Slowly, If You Want Me, not this. Get your snipping shears, everyone. Snip, snip. (laughs) In County Cork, in the country green, in a lonesome town called Bandon, a boy lives there and he dreams a County Clare. The honey that he just had done, oh, he walked over hills and he skipped over rivers all the time, his hand in his love, but his love's not here and never close at hand. His heart's abandoned in Bandon. Two counties, one no. love, too many complications and not enough hand in glove, and not enough hand in glove. Oh. I'll say this about Abandon in Bandoned. Oh, boy, <laughs> that is a hard song title to say. I will say this. Take two. I will say this about Abandon in Bandon. Jesus Christ. It knows when to bow out, right? Are we at a minute and change? Let's call it a day, boys. Can you imagine if this lasted for three minutes? No, thanks. While we're here, you know what I would have appreciated from the original Broadway cast album? Like, a line of dialogue? A line? People like hearing snippets of dialogue from the book, especially when they know they won't be able to see a full production of the show anytime soon. You couldn't have included some lines between Guy, Girl, and the bank manager right before he goes into this solo? It would serve the joke, emphasis on joke, singular, that joke being that the bank manager cannot sing, he's bad singer I'm just saying maybe I should rebrand the podcast as just saying hmm something to consider I will consider it when you're familiar with this week's subject, I'm sure you have noticed the gigantic forward leaps I've been taking over much of its score. It's not because I dislike the material, far from it. I, I simply don't have much to say about it. I, I warned you. You uh, you were warned, and I'm warning you again. Sure, I could keep coming up with variations on This song is pretty good, and the vocals are excellent, ah. but you wouldn't want to hear me repeat myself. Would you? I already repeat myself far too much, in my humble opinion. Having said that, we When Your Mind's Made Up is a good bordering on great song paired with excellent vocals. It's got a scratchy little hook, too. One that allows the performers to rise out of the doldrums and unleash a bit of anger at the microphone. Sustained indie bellowing right from the gut. The sort of vocals that make you dizzy upon delivery. Yes, 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 please. And also thank you.
1: Walking up the hill tonight when you have closed your eyes. I wish I didn't have to make all those mistakes and be wise. Please try to be patient and know that I'm still. That you have to see The strength inside
0: I have already done a fair amount of shouting when it comes to the issue of girl and how we learn very little about her. Not how she feels about men, we get a great deal of that, but her. just her you get it the hill is about as close as we ever get to understanding what is on her mind she wants to work things out with her husband while spending as much time as she can with guy men 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 for clarification the plot of once takes place over the course of five days so these conflicting instincts are coming at her hard and fast how can you make a reasonable decision about the direction of your love life after only five days My take is that girl has real fear within her, fear that applies not only to the subject of men, 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 but to all facets of her life, she doesn't appear to be capable of asking for anything. She's too busy encouraging and propping up others, and I'm worried this will result in her feeling drained, used. Guy actually gets a fairly circuitous and dull act two monologue that explains, it attempts to explain, at least it's not successful, why he is so afraid of taking a chance, but girl is relegated to a song meant for no one but herself. Can she at least be honest and open with her husband? She doesn't have to do Do or be anything she doesn't want to do or be, obviously. But I want her to be happy. I want her to want something for herself. And hell, maybe music is meant to be only for herself. That seems obvious to me. Now, maybe she's merely private. But we're all products of the patriarchy, and I worry about her. Stop worrying about her, Mr. White Knight, John Pernicek, musical man. She's not real. All right, fine. And I love her so.
1: I wouldn't trade her for
0: to tear up during the a cappella version of Gold, and I'm not exactly sure why. It's an absolutely gorgeous track, I know that much. So crisp and professional, while also sounding ethereal and effervescent. This shit floats. It soars, it's straight up beautiful, but I suppose it also sounds a bit funereal, like a final goodbye, and Lord knows the concept of a final or forever goodbye lays me out. I said as much earlier, saying goodbye is a bummer. Damn it, once pulling my heartstrings like I'm an old clattering Pinocchio. I do have strings and they do hold me down and you're pulling on them once. Ooh, you manipulative little beast. Shop, some candles there to buy I looked around the chandler's shop But now one could I spy Well, I was disappointed So some angry words I said Then I heard the sound of a Right above my head Yes, I heard the sound of a Right above my head hey! And I was quick, and up the stairs I sped. And much to my surprise, I saw the chandler's wife in bed, and with her was another man of most gigantic size. And they were having a right before my eyes. Yes, and they were having a right before my eyes. Yeah! And then finally we have a bonus track that is known as Chandler's Wife. The biggest weakness of Once is when it tries to go for bouncy, when its heart is comfortably rooted in the solemn. Most of the comedic numbers never quite land, but Chandler's Wife is like a nice hot drink in the old belly. I'm not sure if it would be included as part of the pre-show or utilized as an encore, but wherever it's placed, it's a hoot and a holler, I do say. I can't play a note on a single instrument, but Chandler's life, wife, <laughs> I wrote it out as life, Chandler's wife makes me wish I could play an instrument. Will I be putting in the work to make that dream a reality? Eh, no, not anytime soon. I do want to learn how to play at least one song on the piano, but first I would need to learn how to read music. Look you're not here to hear me work out my personal shit all right that's our deconstruction of the one score now we're gonna get a word from our sponsor five six seven eight coffee take it away five six seven eight Oh, hi. It's me, little Edie. Oh, fancy seeing you here. It's so nice. Oh, thank you. Come here, come here, come here. I have to tell you something. We have to keep our voices down, all right? I just put Mother down for a nap. She hasn't had a nap in a few days. She hasn't slept in a few days, poor darling. She's always up roaming the halls, peeking at me through the bathroom crack. There's a crack in the bathroom door, and she's always peeking at me when I'm pee-peeing or poo-pooing. And I say, Mother Darling, Mother Darling, please, I need a bit of privacy. She drives me absolutely nuts, but she's my mother and I'll always stand by her. How can you deny a mother her love for a daughter? Oh, I do say. Oh, I do say. Come a little closer. You're a very handsome man. That's very true to me right now looking at you. I'd say you're about yeah, uh, somewhere between 25 years old and 67 years old. That's exactly my type. Do you like my little uh, handkerchief that I wrapped around my head? Oh, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk about my sense of fashionista glory. Gloria School girl looks. No, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about 5678 coffee. And I'm here to tell you right now, mother loves 5678 coffee. I actually went to the store one time and I got the incorrect brand of 5678 coffee. I won't even mention the name of the brand because if mother hears it, even she's on the second floor, even if she she'll hear me. She'll hear me. She's got ears like a goddamn possum, like an armadillo. She's gonna hear me. I'm gonna tell you right now. If she even heard me utter the name of this competing coffee brand, she would smash her way through the glass panes of her window and she would land on me like a possum or an armadillo. Uh, so I'm just here to tell you, five, six, seven, eight coffee is mother's number one choice. And I can see why. I love it myself. Oh, it's so rich, and you put a little bit of cream in there. Now, honestly, sometimes I confuse the cream for the salt, and sometimes I confuse the salt for the pigeon droppings. We have a lot of pigeons here at Gray Gardens. Oh, that's right. Well, Welcome to Grey Gardens. And from a pigeon's point of view, this is apparently a bullseye for bullshit. And I tell you right now, sometimes I scoop up a little little bit of the pigeon shit and I put it in the coffee mug, but Mother never even notices. I realize my mistake letter and I'm mortified. Oh, Mother Darling, I say, you're drinking pigeon shit with your five, six, seven, eight coffee. And you know what she says to me? She says, yum, yum, give me some. And I say, Mother Darling. And she gives me a wink and she says, yum, yum, give me some me some. And I say, mother, darling. And she says, yum, yum, give me some. And she blinks. She wink blinks again. We're very strange here. But you can come by any time for a cup of five, six, seven, eight coffee. I do say, oh, the quality, the price. Oh, you can't beat the price, no, especially on a tight budget. But, you know, I have to go back inside the house because I'm getting a little freaked out by the the grass, the grass. I can feel it growing underneath my bare feet, I do say. So I do say to you, gosh, darling, have a good day. And five, six, seven eight you can count on it and you can count on me five six seven eight America! america america final thoughts on once once is a very easy show to like and i like it i like it a great deal actually but i'm not sure if i could ever come to love it But if I'm certain about anything ah, regarding once, it's that it should never be performed on a proscenium stage. Yes, don't mistake my giggling from a moment ago. Don't let that undercut my seriousness here. No, 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 no. It needs to be staged immersively, all right? Listen, directors to me, listen. In the round, yes. In black box or studio spaces, yes. Where you can be right up against the performers and truly feel as if you are part of their world. I've talked about this already, haven't I? How proscenium stages rarely overcome the inherent distance. The real distance they place between the actors and their audiences, I'm sure I have. Anyway, I forbid once from being performed in an enormous proscenium-style venue. I forbid it. Now, as a reminder, in 2012, (laughs) 2012 once took the award for Best Musical Home, denying that sweet, sweet prize to the other nominees, which were Leap of Faith, Newsies, and Nice Work, if you can get it. God help us when we get to our episodes on Leap of Faith and Nice Work if you can get it, because Christ Almighty are those shows bad. I say that having already sat through the tedium that is the Leap of Faith recording many years ago, I haven't actually sat down with nice work if you can get it yet. But my snoot, my honker, detects a real stink whenever I get close to that show. I get a real noxious whiff, you know? Anyway, I like Newsies, but not enough to say it should sit alongside other best musical winners. Newsies is perfect for when you're sick and need something to watch on Netflix. That's as far as I can reasonably go when it comes to my praise of Newsies. Once, I declare that you shall keep your medallion this day. Huzzah! And hooray! Nice work if you can get it. And if you get it... Won't you show me how? Sibyl on CBS. Bump. Alright, let's rank the show, shall we? I'm gonna put once in the number 17 slot right between rent at number 16, and Woman of the Year at number 18, if you want to see the gay, if you want to get, if you want to get the full rundown on our current ranking, go to twitter.com slash musicalmanpod. There is a pinned tweet at the top of our profile. that will take you to a Google sheet, and the second tab will provide all of that ranking info you need. Yes, yes, it's true. Now, cards on the table, I couldn't find anything worthwhile in relation to once when it comes to show-related ephemera. I did stumble across some random woman's video blog about auditioning for a production of once, but it was, and I'm trying to be kind here. Boring as fuck. Was that kind? Who can say? At one point, I typed the phrase falling slowly commercial into YouTube. And you know what I found? A video bearing the following title. Nutmegs falling slowly onto a clay plate. And they weren't lying. Benny, can we actually play the music from this video while I read its description? Okay, so I want you to close your eyes, close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, and imagine nutmegs falling slowly onto a clay plate while I read this. They say plate, but it's really more of a bowl. but I'm not the polite police. I'm not the bold police. I'm not going to adjudicate this any further or too harshly. Anyway, here's the video description. Quote, the nutmeg tree is important for two spices derived from the fruit, nutmeg and mace. (laughs) That can't possibly be how it's pronounced. All right, let's start again. How would I pronounce it though? Oh, this was a terrible idea. I thought this would be funny, but it's dumb. The nutmeg tree is important for two spices derived from the fruit, nutmeg and moss. Let's go with moss, I feel so stupid. Nutmeg is the seed of the tree, roughly egg-shaped and about 20 to 30 millimeters, well, you know, 0.8 to 1 inches long and 15 to 18 millimeters, 0.6 to 0.7 inches wide, and weighing between 5 and 10 grams, 0.2 and 0.4 ounces dried. While mace, mas, matcha is the dried lacy reddish covering or aril of the seed. The first harvest of this is the worst idea that I've ever had, and I'm bringing it to an end. <laughs> this was. Such a bad idea, and I'm not gonna pretend otherwise. Why am I making you sit through me? A recitation of me reading a video description about nutmegs? Ah, why, Benny? I apologize. Do you forgive me? Thank you. Benny, cut the music. Cut it. Thank you, Benny. Normally at this point in the show, we would take a ride on the musical carousel to determine what show we discuss next week. But another loyal listener has posted a Miss Saigon, more like Blast Saigon, review via Apple Podcasts, and so they have earned the right to decide next week's subject. That show is a 2019 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical and is currently running on Broadway. It's Tootsie, baby, Tootsie, Tootsie, Tootsie. Thank you to listener Chris J.C. for the review and support. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. Listeners can donate one, three, five, or... $10 a month. Those who donate $1 a month will receive weekly verbal shout-outs. Let's do that now. Thank you for donating Jordan, Ashley, Chris JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. $1 a month patrons also have access to special episodes dedicated to the 73rd Annual Tony Awards and the first trailer for the forthcoming film adaptation of Cats! Breaking news, mark your calendars for November 5th as $1 a month donors, $1 a month and up donors, I should say, will be getting another special bonus episode dedicated to ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, starring Shaggy, Queen Latifah, and John Stamos. Sure, why not? Those who donate $3 a month will get everything I've mentioned, plus a special musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of their choosing. And starting in November 2019, you will also have access to the High School Musical Podcast. True? True. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I have mentioned, the ability to stop the musical carousel and tell me what show to discuss on the podcast, plus access to the first season of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. You also now have access to the first episode in our Broadway in Chicago series, in which I discuss my recent experience with J.T. Rogers Oslo. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you not only get everything I've already mentioned, you also get access to The Snow Club, a monthly series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Our next Snub Club episode, scheduled to drop Wednesday, October 30th, will be dedicated to Jason Robert Brown's The Bridges of Madison County. Past subjects include Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahuli American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, and It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. Donations go toward the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, and offsetting the cost of being hosted through Podbean. If we ever get to a point where we we are bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations. I will begin production of M3, the Movie Muse Command, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of musicals that are tied by a common theme. Go to Apple Podcasts and write up a glowing five-star review, won't you? We have 23 five-star reviews at this point, including those reviews from the UK and Australia. And once we hit 30, I'll record a special episode dedicated to Disney's Descendants Trilogy. It's true! Stream the show at MusicalManPod Dot podbean.com and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at MusicalManPod and email me at at gmail.com. I would love to read your thoughts and red hot takes on this week's show, so don't be shy. We actually received some red hot takes from listener Haley. Thank you so much, Haley. Here are Haley's takes. One. The song, I'm quoting Haley now, the song I'd Rather Be Me from Mean Girls is actually so bad in the context of the show. Did Janice forget that she's the one who came up with the plan to put Katie in the plastics in the first place? Now, Haley, I will say, I am not familiar with Mean Girls at this point. It will be included as part of the Broadway and Chicago season, and so I will be watching it eventually. I believe that will happen in January of next year. So, I am going to take your word for this, absolutely, and I can absolutely see a show like Mean Girls having some problems (laughs) in regards to the narrative. I can see that being a bit of a a shaky clothesline on which to hang your laundry. (laughs) Uh, Let's see the second take here. Second take. Dear Evan Hansen is a mediocre musical with some really good songs. Waving Through a Window for forever and some really bad ones. Anybody have a map to break a glove? I I have listened to the Dear Evan Hansen album and I think that the biggest problem I'm going to have with that show is its plot and you're right. I think I I remember especially that glove song. That glove song is a bit of a snoozer a bit of a clunker. So I'm going to take Thank you. I'm gonna take that too. I'm gonna, to, I'm gonna take that. I'm gonna accept it. Thank you, Haley. Third take from Haley. Why is it so hard to write a good superhero musical? That's not a take. That's a question. And I'm going to say to you right now, I I don't know. I don't exactly know why it's so difficult. I think it's mainly because for the most part, people don't tend to take the material all that seriously. They don't try to remain especially faithful to the material because they think they either have some sort of artistic, you know, slant that they want to apply to the material, see Julie Taymor and Spider-Man, or they are really, uninterested in what makes the character so appealing and they just want to make fun of it. See the Snub Club episode dedicated to It's Bird, It's Plane, It's Superman. That is my very harried and off-the-cuff theory regarding that question, Haley. And finally, Haley says if you revive a musical and don't majorly change something about the staging, choreography, music, or even the book, What's the point? A fair question, Haley. Now, I do believe that there are some pieces that deserve their sort of frozen-in-time museum status. I would like to say that A Chorus Line is the best example of that type of show. I don't think we really need to be messing with the book or the staging all that much. We love the show because every every element came together so well in that original production, and I don't necessarily see a need to tweak or reconceptualize or rethink any of those elements. It's a really good recipe. It's it's the rare instance where everything came together really well now for a lot of other shows a lot of older shows I I agree with you. We don't need to view those as Museum pieces if we're going to do a show like let's say South Pacific We need to rewrite that book if we're gonna redo Miss Saigon if we're gonna revive it I should say we need to rewrite that book and we need to really rethink where we are now and how we think Now, we can't expect people to see a character like Bloody Mary as anything other than a stereotype. That's a ridiculous thing to expect. And if you're going to hide behind the defensive... Just presenting the show as it is. Everyone loves the show. We wouldn't want to mess with it. Come on, give me a break. Musicals go through so many drastic revisions. Ask Frank Wildhorn. Musicals are meant to be changed for the most part. Don't touch a chorus line. That's my take. Thanks as always to Benny in the booth. Alex Green for our beautiful logo. And Zach Little for our fabulous music. Ah, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night.
1: of the year the classic hit songs from brian wilson and the beach boys the invitations are out to a new wave broadway musical place
0: the eugene o'neill theater date january 27th dress wetsuits optional right now here's the cast of good vibrations having a little fun fun fun